Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's public event, An Astronaut's Story of Invention. Um, I'm Oliver Morton. I'm a briefings editor at The Economist. I edit all sorts of long-form stuff for the magazine, including, and I write sometimes when I get a chance to write about science and technology and climate and similar things, and you can often find me doing so in Rothmull's The Excellent Cafe attached to the RSA. Um, but today I'm not just sitting around in a corner typing. I'm introducing to you former astronaut, uh, former NASA astronaut and oceanographer Kathy Sullivan to talk about her memoir, Handprints on Hubble. You probably know this. Um, this year is the 30th anniversary of the launch of the shuttle mission STS-31, which launched the Hubble Space Telescope, which probably has as good a case as any instrument for being the, the most influential instrument in the history of astronomy since Galileo. Um, data gathered on it has uh, transformed understanding of uh, many things, including, I think, you know, the sheer depth and size and glory of the cosmos. Um, so the format is that first Cathy will speak for a bit and read a little bit of her book, then she and I will have a conversation, and then she and you will have a conversation which I will attempt to facilitate. Um, Cathy travelled to space on board the space shuttle Challenger in 1984. She was the third American woman to travel into space. She was the first to do a spacewalk, um, which we're definitely going to talk about. Overall, she's been in space for about three weeks. Um, since leaving NASA, she's worked as the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and, Air and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, which is America's sort of like leading um, environmental science body, among other things, and um, for, performed uh, under President Obama as the Assistant Secretary for, of Commerce and uh, for part of that time acted as the administrator of NOAA. So please welcome Kathy Sullivan. Well, thank you, Oliver. Delightful to be here, and thank you all for coming out today. Um, what I thought I would do just to set a bit of tone and backdrop, I don't know if any of you have perhaps yet picked up the book, but tell you a little bit of the backstory, how the book came to be, why it came to be, uh, and then maybe as the transition to the next phase of our conversation, uh, read a bit from the prologue to sort of uh, set the, the ambiance of climbing aboard a space shuttle to go do crazy things like leave telescopes in orbit. Um, my motivation for writing the book was twofold, uh, none of which was that you really needed to have Kathy Sullivan's memoir. Uh, that's a device to get the other two bits out into print for you. Uh, <laughs> and those two bits were, uh, there, there's a very significant chapter in the long history of the Hubble Space Telescope uh, that I had never found written up anywhere. It had been completely overlooked. You could find a few scholarly tomes about all the bureaucratic warfare from the early 1960s to the mid-late 1970s that led to Hubble actually being approved and funded by Congress and starting to get built. You could find a lot on the other end of the story about all the magnificent images and astronomical discoveries. And you'd find a little transition bit in the middle between those two blocks that boiled down to but oh my god, they discovered the mirror was flawed, but thank heavens they fixed it, and on we go to the glorious pictures. Um, there's that, none of that is false, but it leaves a bit out about, wait a minute, oh, thank heavens they fixed it. 
you don't go to a hardware store. There's not a space telescope aisle in any hardware store. You just easily go by and pick up the tools that you're going to need to repair this thing 300 miles above the Earth, whizzing around at 17,500 miles an hour, with the repairs being done by people who are wearing the equivalent of double snowmobile suits, triple mittens, and buckets on their head. Uh, so somewhere along the way in that gap that hasn't been written about, some people needed to apply an awful lot of foresight and then invention and creativity and, and careful engineering to actually imagine how do you do that, what architectural features, what general layout will make that possible, and then what gear and gadgets do you actually need to go do it in orbit, and how does that need to be adapted to uh, being workable for people in those snowmobile suits and mittens and, and buckets. Well, that work, and, and in particular, the bit about making sure you actually have the gear and equipment that makes this prospect of maintenance a reality, uh, that work got done in a five-year block of time from 1985 to 1990. I worked alongside those engineers, unsung engineers, uh, from the Lockheed Martin Corporation and different parts of NASA. They are to Hubble what the Hidden Figures computer ladies are to the John Glennon early Mercury story the people whose work is absolutely indispensable to how it all came out right, but whose names have essentially never been mentioned, and stories of how they uh, came to be clever enough to do that never told. So they, filling in this missing chapter of history so that people could appreciate the role that engineering foresight and invent inventiveness and a focus on maintenance, those three things play a huge role in why Hubble is the twice its lifetime success that it is. That, all that bit had been overlooked. And I wanted that to get into uh, the historical record. And I wanted uh, these really clever and delightful people I worked alongside for five years uh, to finally get their due. So that's why I subject you to some of my life story as a, you know, oysters to me are a vehicle for carrying cocktail sauce, which is the only worthwhile part of the proposition. My life story is the vehicle for bringing these people's story and the work they did uh, into the record. So with that, maybe let me read a bit from uh, the start of the book, and this is, this is the day in which the Hubble journey, actual Hubble journey actually to space, actually began. April 24, 1990, found us right back where we had been 14 days earlier. Suited up, strapped in, and ready to go. With the countdown clock stopped at T minus 31 seconds again. <clears throat> this time, the Launch Control Center computers had halted the countdown because of an indication that one valve on a pipe used to fill the external fuel tanks had failed to close. If the indicator was correct, then just one other valve was left to prevent the fuel in the tank from leaking overboard instead of feeding into the space shuttle's main engines. If that happened, we could end up too low to deploy the Hubble Space Telescope or at an abort landing site on the other side of the Atlantic or splashed into the ocean. The launch would be scrubbed rather than accept that risk. If the indicator was wrong, however, think of the flaky tire pressure sensor on your car, then the engine system was fine, and there was no reason to scrub. So which was it? Serious problem or faulty indicator? Go for launch or scrub? This high-stakes call fell to the launch team controller responsible for the shuttle's main propulsion system someone I still know only by the call sign MPS. <laughs> Time was not on his side. The shuttle's auxiliary power units 
set a strict limit on how long we could hold at this point, just 12 minutes more. In the cockpit, we listened intently as the launch team worked out the problem. MPS, what's your status? The launch director asked. The propulsion engineer talked calmly through the data on his display. The temperature and pressure readings in the surrounding lines were not consistent with an open valve. Fundamental physics said it was closed. He proposed to send a manual command, hoping this would make the indicator read correctly. That worked, but the control center computers still had a lock on the countdown clock. MPS, what's your call? The launch director pressed. I am prepared to manually override the software and proceed with the count, he replied. With a crisp and rapid cadence the best soldier would envy, the launch director gave him the go to do that and told the other launch controllers to get ready to continue the countdown. The call we had been hoping for came a split second after. All controllers, this is NTD. The countdown clock will resume on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. The entire episode had taken less than three minutes. 31 seconds later, Discovery roared off the launch pad. Sitting on the lower deck with nothing but a wall of storage lockers to look at, I closed my eyes and took in the sounds and sensations of a space shuttle launch. The solid rocket motors, which are essentially gigantic firecrackers, made the first two minutes and 15 seconds turbulent and loud. I felt like I was in an earthquake and a fighter jet at the same time. The vibrations were almost bone rattling, the thrust pushing through my back strong and constant. I felt the thrust tailing off just before Charlie announced the solid rockets were burning out then heard the thump that confirmed they had been jettisoned. The ride was much quieter now, and as smooth as an electric train. The push against my back continued as the main engines accelerated us towards orbital velocity. Six minutes later, they cut off as planned. The lightness of my arms and legs and the checklists floating at the ends of their tethers announced that we were in orbit. Although nearly six years had passed since my first space flight, I felt instantly at home. Thank you, Kathy. So let's actually go back six years before that to your first space flight. And on October the 6th, 1984, you wake up to the sound of flash dance. Is that right? Oh, goodness, I, I can't income. remember any of our wake-up music. Probably, <laughs> right? The, well, according to Wikipedia, this was, a, the, the, this was right. What, was it, what's, it like? it right. what's it like to wake up in space? Um, you know, most of us, I think, were awake and rousing about a bit mm. before Mission mm. Control Center officially was allowed to start communicating with us again. Um, and you'd hear there's a distinctive tone that would signal mm -hmm. there's a radio link opening up, and then the, the protocol, the custom was... They just start some music running, kind of like your alarm clock waking mm. you up gracefully in the morning. And when they finished, they'd, uh, the voice would come up the loop, usually saying something innocent like, you know, Challenger Houston, uh, Challenger, good morning, Houston, standing by. And then they'd leave you to go about your coffee mm -hmm. and your rest of your wake-up ritual, unless something was really very pressing. Uh, do you ever feel disoriented? Do you ever wake up thinking... What on earth is happening, or what off earth is happening? Or? Uh, I, you know, I didn't. Um, I had on that flight always slept on the upper deck, mm -hmm. uh, sort of 
ran a little tether through my wristwatch and mm -hmm. tied it off on something else and just sort of drifted on the end of that. Because if I woke up a bit in the middle of the night, I wanted to take a look out the windows before popping back to sleep. So uh, I had a lovely night of good sleep and a couple of really delightful views of different parts of the Earth. That sounds great. Give us a sense. I mean, this is actually possibly quite a good room for this. How does this space compare with the amount of crew space there was on a shuttle? Oh, vastly larger. <laughs> the, this, the stage is a closer comparison. But three stories, three uh, decks two. of it, two decks there's, of there's it. There's two decks and, uh, you know, an understory, mm -hmm. like everyone's bad crawl space in their house that has the pumps and fans and things in it. So it's That's uh, a, a main, only a maintenance space. So it's a pretty intimate sort of space. Cozy, yeah, very cozy. <laughs> Except, you know, it's not, it is two floors, and mm -hmm. it's not even, well, I guess it must be about as high as this. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you've got a lot more room in it because you don't have to have your feet on the floor, so... If this is feeling a little crowded, we'll just put you up there. You know, right. That feels a lot roomier. But you actually got to go outside, which is something that yes. I... Um, tell us a little bit about that spacewalk. You were working on refueling a, a satellite? Yeah, the shuttle was uh, advertised as being able to uh, put launch, carry things into orbit, but also either retrieve them or repair them in orbit or refuel them. And NASA was very intent in those early days of demonstrating all three of those capabilities. There had uh, already been a flight to repair a satellite in mm -hmm. orbit. Um, and by, by accident with some satellite failures, there was a flight already planned to retrieve some mm -hmm. and bring them back so the problem could be fixed. And so we got the assignment that was focused on, well, let's prove you can actually refuel. Uh, the easy part was, you know, can you make two couplings that will go together and let liquid go back and forth? Uh, and an early version of that had been tested a few flights before us. The tricky bit was the propellant, the fuel that, all satellites, pretty well all satellites maneuver with, is super toxic and super explosive. And so the judgment was no one who owns a satellite is going to consider us a credible refueling service if we've never actually done refueling with this real nasty propellant. That's what, hydrazine? Hydrazine. Yeah. So for, for one thing, if you squeeze more hydrazine into a tank that already has some in it, if you do that too quickly, you know, raising the pressure in the tank raises the temperature in the tank. And there's a really rather low temperature that if you push hydrazine to that temperature, it will just spontaneously explode with no added help. So you've got to have your thermodynamics right, and you've got to have good control over how quickly you're adding new hydrazine in. Uh, and this experiment let us do some of that thermodynamics mm -hmm. experiments. And then the other thing is, because it's so toxic and so nasty, uh, do you really have the equipment that will let astronauts open up a fuel tank that's already got hydrazine in it? put a fuel line in that also has hydrazine in it and be confident they won't get contaminated on their suits. Or, mm -hmm. you know, A, I mean, you could, if you get contaminated on the outside of a spacesuit, you're safely sealed inside. But you come back into an airlock with some of that stuff on the outside and you repressurize the airlock. All the little hydrazine frost on the outside of your suit will go into the vapor in the air. And the tiniest bit, I mean, about a fingernail's worth of hydrazine ice, if it circulated back into the shuttle's cabin was reckoned would at least sicken everyone and possibly be more da dangerous than that. So can you really create and invent tools? Um, I mean, think of it this way. The challenge was, I want you to refill the gas tank on your car without ever touching the gas tank. Always having at least two barriers between you and the gas tank. But somehow, you've got to insert a new fuel line in. And so that was the clever engineering problem we had to solve for that was how do, you, how do you make a gadget that will let you do that? Sounds absolutely terrifying. 
fun. <laughs> so tell us about about the fun. What was so it took you three and a half hours? Yes, you were working yeah. with a partner. Yes, that it was a which is quite short by spacewalk standards actually, but uh, that was the confines of our test. And then there was a, a fairly minor problem with one of the space shuttle's antennas that we need to do needed to do a bit of an adjustment to as well. Um, well, I mean, every astronaut, you, all flights are great flights. You want to fly as soon as possible, as long as possible. High inclination to see as much of the Earth as possible. And rule number five is get a spacewalk if you possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and only a quarter to a third of, of people who become astronauts actually ever end up outside on the spacewalk. I mean, to get to put on your very own body-shaped spaceship, your pilot in command of your own spaceship, uh, and move around in the flexibility of zero gravity, not in a water tank where you can simulate it pretty well, but actually with the planet going by right up there, uh, and then have always pretty fascinating, challenging and fascinating work to do. It's a very coveted thing to get to do if you're the kind of people we are. Tell us about the kind of people you were. You were one of the first women to train as an astronaut at NASA. What was it like being part of that first intake? Because they were presumably hugely increasing the astronaut corps because of the shuttle program. Yeah, they were. Uh, I think there were about... Uh, probably going to have this number misremembered at the moment. There were something on the order of two dozen mm -hmm. uh, astronauts already in the astronaut corps and a prospect of very rapid flights with the shuttle, very frequent flights, which in the end, of course, did not materialize, but that's what NASA was preparing for. And so with our class, uh, they chose 35 people, a mixture of test pilots and engineers, physicians, scientists of different sorts, with an age span that ran from just just younger than the oldest guys already there down to several less fresh mm -hmm. out of graduate school. Um, you know, I think, you know, if you walk into an organization as the first strange person there, you know, the first person of color or first woman or whatever, and you're very junior, you're likely to get all of the teasing and hazing that might anybody in that organization might get as a junior person. And a double dose, uh, somewhat because people are just you know, snarky, and sometimes because someone maybe is testing to see if you've got what they think it takes mm -hmm. to succeed in this organization. But if you walk in that organization as the admiral or as the CEO, uh, you're going to probably be treated the other way around because there's only a certain way you treat admirals and CEOs. Even if I haven't seen one that ever looked like you, mm -hmm. I'm probably going to start with that uh, presumption of competence and respect. Mm -hmm. And I think we got, we got that treatment uh, with almost zero exception, I would mm -hmm. say. Uh, but we were always going into places within NASA that had never had, if women were there, they were bringing a memo to someone or serving the coffee or sitting in the back row taking notes for someone. They were not sitting at the decision maker table. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, we all quickly learned to be smart about that because uh, we were now representing the crew. We are not yet on flight assignments ourselves, but we are representing the astronaut corps. So you had to claim your place. And so I would usually do that by introducing myself to the chair of the meeting mm -hmm. and, and basically de facto enlisting that person, always a man, to say, uh, and, and let's be clear, Kathy Sullivan is here now representing the crew. Well, suddenly the whole room is sort of on notice. You can stop wondering why this woman's sitting at the front table. It's because she's representing the crew. Is there any difference between the astronauts who have flown and those who haven't? Is it, very, is it something people are very aware of in the Corps? Um, yes and no. I think when, when you're the one who hasn't flown, it's partly eagerness and it's partly awareness that you know, a big disaster or an engineering problem can put a, 
a long delay in, in your wait time to get to go fly. Uh, that's, that is the experience and the opportunity everyone's keen to have, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, but it's, it's not really, it's not a look down on the others who haven't. It's more a, a striving and reaching and, and hoping that the experience doesn't slip away from you too much. So would you have been able to do the work that you did um, cooperating with the people at Lockheed um, and, uh, and, and I guess Huntsville. elsewhere, Huntsville, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, on the tools for the space, for the, uh, space telescope maintenance? Would you have been able to do that without having had the experience of doing a spacewalk yourself? Um, yes, to, to a degree, but certainly having worked with the suit in actual zero-G, you know, it, it added some more nuanced insights and certainly some confidence. Mm. Uh, but I think the water tank training and any experience even on the ground in the suit, if you spend time inside the suit, you really become aware of... it. it it doesn't let you move all the same way as your body can move. It sets some real limits on what you can reach and what you can do. Uh, however strong your grip is, naturally, just, just squeezing your hand closed in the suit takes about half of your strength. So the amount of strength you're going to need and the amount of force that it... It doesn't make sense to build tools that require really high grip force like to prove that you have a strong grip. Mm -hmm. You want to level that down so that you're not fatiguing everybody's hands. You're moving hand over hand. Uh, you're clasping and unclasping tethers. You, so a spacewalk is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hand grips mm -hmm. that are like those spring grips that you might use to strengthen your forearms uh, over, for us, a three-and-a-half-hour period up to an eight-hour period. So if you're a designer designing a work site and tasks and tools, you want to be thinking about how do I make the forces required as low as possible, but the, the fasteners and things as firm as, and reliable as possible, because I need these two people to be able to do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hand grips over eight hours. If I wear, if I wear them out in the first hour, we've lost the rest of that work time. And, I can tell you, as I describe in the book, the very first time I got in a spacesuit and worked underwater, it was a pretty, it was a badly designed task, especially for doing it in the water. Uh, and I think we did four hours underwater, after which, uh, I mean, my hands were cramped for about three days. I could scarcely pick up the soft drink can that they had waiting for me when we were done. I just exhausted them, spaghetti hands. Mm -hmm. You were saying that your, your spacewalk was reasonably short at three and a half hours, but that was still time to go, what, twice around the world? More than twice. Yeah. Um, do you not get distracted? If you want to do a second <laughs> spacewalk, you better not get distracted. <laughs> Did you get... I once, I've had the great pleasure of talking to Rusty Schweikert about this, and he had the sort of like slightly weird experience of being um, outside the spacecraft with nothing to do because someone else was moving around inside and he had unprogrammed time. Did you have any of that luxury? Um, I had a, just a couple of snippets of unbroken mm. time. Um, the way our flight was originally planned, our spacewalk was going to be on about the third day of the mission. And the highest priority cargo element that we had with us was a, a large um, synthetic aperture radar, a big antenna about as wide as this room. And it put so much power out as it was trying to image the Earth that that power, that radiated power, would mess with the computer systems that run our spacesuits. So in the original flight plan, as soon as we were ready to open the hatch, that instrument had to shut down and had to stay off until we came back in. 
Uh, and so we had trained to really move very swiftly through mm. our timeline and minimize the impact on that payload, just out and tickety-boo mm. and get back in. Lots of events shifted that all around <laughs> in actual flight. And by the time we did the spacewalk, that was not a factor at all. We could have, take, we could have taken six hours to do the experiment. It wouldn't have affected um, that other payload at all. But we were, David and I were just so conditioned and had such a cadence, we just went zooming on through it. But our commander, uh, Bob Crippen, who was on his third flight, so real veteran, and he'd, one of his flights had had a lot of spacewalks on it, he saw us you know, beetling out of the hatch and just going right into our rhythm and going about our normal stuff. And he actually ordered us to stop for a moment in the first couple minutes of the spacewalk and, and truly said, you know, look around. There's no water here. There's no scuba divers, which you have all around you in the training tanks for safety. There's no scuba divers. That blue thing up there is not the top of the pool. It's the earth. You know, stop for a minute. You really are here. You really are doing this. Because when, when you maneuver in a spacesuit, you know, like I said, you're moving hand over hand. And your, your field of view is full of whatever structure you're moving around. If, you, if you're moving along the shuttle like this and you want to see the Earth, you have to, have to move the shuttle out of the way and pivot your whole body mm -hmm. to see the Earth. So you can do a long spacewalk crawling around the station or the shuttle, and you could come back in the hatch and kind of not have noticed there was a planet out there. Crippen wanted to make sure we didn't do that. That was very decent of him. It was quite decent of him. Uh, do you remember which bit of the Earth you were over when you stopped and looked out? Yeah, I, I don't remember that time, because we were down in the payload bay, and I think we just saw the big arc of the Earth, and I don't recall picking out any specific geographic features. But later in the spacewalk, I had to maneuver from one side of the shuttle to the other along an improvised pathway. And in the middle of making that transit, our crewmates inside were going to capture a scene for the IMAX movie, The Dream is Alive. And so they needed, they needed me to not move too quickly across the bay, because I hadn't got the camera quite set up yet. So that was the other sort of, hey, guys, wait a minute, hold on there a second. We're still setting up. And that gave me, it felt like five minutes. It was probably two mm -hmm. uh, to sort of look around. And I do remember being, well, I do remember seeing a piece of Venezuela go right between my boots. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a lot of um, diving as well. Um, how does the experience actually compare of weightlessness in space and floating in the ocean? Well, I've done both. Uh, I mean, so scuba diving is a very good comparator to spacewalking. Mm -hmm. If you get your weights adjusted perfectly so you're neutrally buoyant, you, know, you can sort of move with the littlest kick of a flipper or the littlest touch of a finger. Um, you still have to displace water, and of course you don't have to do that mm -hmm. when you're spacewalking. But that's why we use large mm -hmm. training tanks for simulating spacewalks. I've also had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to get into deep diving submersibles mm -hmm. and go much deeper into the ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, the deepest about 8,500 8, feet, um, and so that's again, you know, confined space. Uh, you feel you could be dressed just as you are dressed here. You would feel just as you are here, but you know everything right outside that porthole is fatal to you, and that's similar <laughs> in a spaceship. You feel just like this, except you know. And it looks very normal out that window, and it's a very fascinating view, but you dare not go out there without proper precautions. Well, or at 8,500 feet. At 8,500 feet, you dare not go out there at all. <laughs> um, so, what makes a young oceanographer want to become an astronaut? Well, this young oceanographer wanted to see the Earth with her own eyes from that vantage point. Mm -hmm. I mean, growing up watching uh, all of the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo missions, the Skylab missions, 
I think I had pored over every single astronaut photograph of the Earth that ever had been taken. I'd always been fascinated by maps from the youngest age, and you know, <clears throat> photographs and images from space are really are another version of map mm -hmm. uh, that give you a more, you know, natural human view of what the surface, at least the surface of the planet, looks like. So, card-carrying geologists, if they offer you a chance to look at the planet from an orbital perspective, are you really going to say no? Well, I, I do know some geologists who would say, well, but I can't hit it with a hammer, so that wouldn't be real work. <laughs> yes, but you might understand it better than if you just go whacking at it with your hammer. <laughs> that is definitely true. So, you, what you learned on that, I mean, that flight was not just, I mean, the other thing is that as an oceanographer, that was actually a, a kind of oceanographic and Earth sciences flight. Yes, we yeah. always think about things like the Hubble looking out. But a lot of what the shuttle did was, in, was, was Earth science stuff. Yeah, and that flight definitely was. Uh, we deployed one satellite whose job was to me measure the radiation balance of the Earth, mm. how much sunlight comes in, how much other radiation goes back out. You know, is it a net inflow or net outflow? Um, the, those measurements are actually quite crucial. They're in, very crucial. Yeah. Yeah, and that satellite has been one of the workhorses, one of the mainstays in the data set. Didn't it also image the um, ozone hole? No, yeah, not I thought that Sage one. Two. Had, yeah, that's uh, that was a different one. Oh right. I mean, it did have one of the Sage instruments mm, aboard. Right. Um, and then I operated a cluster of experiments, the, that big radar I talked mm -hmm. about, and a large camera, and several others that were. Some of them were taking Earth imaging data for direct investigations into oceanography and geology. Some others were testing uh, instrument methods that could be used mm -hmm. on later satellites. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was the refueling experiment. And. Was it a coincidence that you were doing this oceanography mission on the shuttle that was named after one of the greatest ships in the history of oceanography, the Challenger? Well, NASA had decided to name, I mean, Columbia was named after an historic vessel in early United States history. But when they um, laid out the game plan for naming the remaining shuttles, uh, they, made, they made the explicit decision to echo names of grand exploration vessels, ocean exploration vessels. So Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, Endeavor, mm -hmm. you know, all have great historical names so in oceanography. If it had gone on a bit further, there'd have been a space shuttle Terra and space shuttle Erebus. Yeah, we prefer <laughs> ones that didn't sink so ignominiously. But thinking about, I mean, you were still at NASA when, what, three flights later, four flights later, the Challenger was lost. Do you remember how you heard about it? Um, I do, and then my first flight was on Challenger. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, I was out in California uh, working on some of the tooling and equipment for Hubble, and our work on Hubble what, out in the large facility where it was being built and tested, our stuff was always relegated to third shift, so we would start our work at 10 or 11 at night and work through until 6 or 7 in the morning. Uh, and I, I had done, I don't remember now how many days of that, and we it was done, and was flying back to Houston. Uh, so, you know, pretty... Pretty dead tired, exhausted. Um, Not flying yourself? No, a commercial airliner. Mm -hmm. uh, and landed at Dallas to, uh, to connect into the flight to Houston and realized I was planning to go into the office. I was going to mm -hmm. get back with enough time to clean up email and things like that. But I realized when we landed that I was just way too tired to do that. And so popped in a phone booth, remember those? Mm -hmm. And rang my office to tell my secretary I wasn't going to come in and... You know, just the whole start of the phone call was not normal, uh, and you could sort of quickly sense something's up, mm -hmm. and she broke the news to me. How did it affect both you and the agency? Uh, horribly, devastatingly. I mean, the world stops. It feels you know, like it 
someone drove a train right through the middle of you. Just, you know, I think it gutted everybody. It's interesting. I was talking recently to someone at NASA who said that for her generation, that was what made her want to go and work at NASA. The, the, the idea that this terrible thing had happened and there could be people who would help work to make sure such things didn't happen again. I think actually the current NASA administrator has said something similar, Jim Bernstein, which I think is interesting contrast, that this idea that rather than um, making people, it, to some extent it reaffirmed people's sense of commitment to it. Was that? I, I think for many of us, uh, certainly for me, I, I felt that way. I mean, I my own equation for why I applied to become an astronaut was a, and I, I thought this through for weeks before even filling out the application. It's an inherently risky thing. It, you're, you're signing up to ride bombs for a living. You've got to be very clear-eyed about that. Um, I'm applying in 1977, so the United States has been through several years of debate and controversy about should we even have a space program? Isn't it a lot of money? Couldn't you spend that money better here on Earth? You know, what's the purpose and value of spending it in that way? Um, and so I really thought carefully through all of those things. And for me, I believe the, the value and purpose of um, the tech, driving the technology to be able to do new and different things in space, the things you can learn from space about the Earth, things you can learn in space about growth, biology, human body, things you can learn about the cosmos. All of that collectively has, to me, considerable value uh, for science, for humanity, for the advancement of my country. Mm -hmm. um, the chance to see the Earth for, on a personal level, to see the Earth from my own eyes, to be a part of some grand quest that is, I think, great and noble and bigger than any of us, that was attractive. And you've got to, you, know, in, you individually have to do what's the value of all of this as mm -hmm. you reckon it. Mm -hmm. or, and it might just be you want to be famous, it might just be whatever, but that's what, you've got to reckon that up and lay it against uh, the risk will never be zero. And this is all an enterprise conducted and managed by human beings. And human beings make errors of omission and commission. They just do. That's never going to be zero. So you know, do you have enough confidence in the competence and integrity and intentions of all these people? Because mm -hmm. you're not going to get to check them all. And you're not going to get to interview them all. And you're not going to get to poke the tires on all of it. You just got to do that and decide if the value is worth the, the risk. And I had concluded that it was. So when Challenger exploded and there was you know, this wave of angst and anguish and, all the, and lots of political recriminations, yeah, there was a moment where I seriously wondered whether the political decision would be, well, let's just stop that. You know, well, this was fun as long as it was fun, but now that we've had one bad result and a horrible TV moment, let's just knock it all off. And if, if that had been the decision, I don't know if we ever actually were close to that, but it mm -hmm. felt to me for a while, like that actually, it actually could happen that that would be the decision. And then I would have felt like I had been suckered. Right. That we'd actually been doing this to make good, fun television. And as soon as it became not fun, we were just going to stop. And that was not, that was not why I was willing to take the risks of being a part of it. Am I right in thinking that none of the astronauts left? No, none. No. Um, you... I mean, it's a little bit, this is going to sound a bit melodramatic, but you know, if, if we had quit flying then, then I would have been even more devastated because my classmates would have died in vain. Right. And we're not about to let that happen. 
you flew on the Challenger when, when you flew six, uh, on, its, uh, on its sixth flight. You flew with Sally Ride, who went on to work on the um, investigation into the Challenger disaster. You, however, worked um, as part of the Payne Commission on what America's future in space flight um, would be. Um, that was that pain report was to those of us who were taking an interest in space at the time, uh, an incredibly ambitious, um, stirring report. Um, and for instance, it would have had Americans back on the moon and Americans and others by 2005 and on Mars. What do you feel looking back at that sort of like enthusiasm of those days? Were you just over optimistic? Was there something fundamental you weren't understanding about the world or? No, I, uh, I think we knew, we knew our best bet was to paint uh, a somewhat, somewhat daring and aspirational picture. Mm -hmm. And we knew you know, that determinants invariably will be political will and mm -hmm. money. There was tech, technology, technical solutions were clearly in hand or feasible by those time frames. Mm -hmm. um, so we made a conscious choice to not give everyone too much wiggle room, but say, you know, there, there are reasons to be bold and aspirational about your uh, interest in space. Mm -hmm. And here they are. It was you know, exploration and commerce and fundamental discovery. Uh, and this could be what you can do in these time frames. But you've, you've got to just really commit that it's important and stick to it and provide proper resources for it. Uh, the, three, the three thrusts and many of the whys and wherefores we describe in that report have been you know, validated over and over again. Mm -hmm. they, come back round and round. I mean, there's, they're like the DNA of spaceflight. Right. They keep coming up because they really are the determinants and the value proposition. And they get captured over and over again in great aspirational statements by successive presidents uh, that, as with our report, you know, get the bold statement and the nice artist concepts and the big press release, and then not the public mobilization and not the political mobilization and not the funding mm -hmm. to actually get it done. Now we have uh, the new American program for moon missions is consciously about the idea of um, women going to the moon on the basis that, in fact, you as someone who flew up to the relatively high orbit of the Hubble, you must be one of the women who's been furthest from the Earth. Is that right? Because so I have a dear friend in, in Columbus who refers to me as the most vertical girl in the world. <laughs> and I have another dear friend who's composing the lyrics to the Richard Rogers melody, so. <laughs> well, okay, that, uh, that, uh, that, that takes a turn. <laughs> the idea of making the role of a woman in returning to the moon central to the way that, how do, how do you feel about that? Um... Well, I, I think the population statistics of the astronaut corps say, well, of course that's going to happen. Um, I, I'm, I suspect to a fair degree it's a bit of a political mm -hmm. gesture to try mm -hmm. to capture some extra political attention and, and sort of change the equation mm -hmm. on the prospect of making uh, mm -hmm. the Artemis push really happen. A little more inspiration for younger... I mean, those are all fine things to do. Uh, but you know, the fundamental equation of is the country and via the Congress actually going to subscribe to that and rally around it and provide the support needed to do it, that's, you know, that's the litmus test. What about the private? I, I'd have to take my shoes off to count how many presidents have done the same <laughs> press release, artist concept, bold statement. 
except, except, except each person takes the old statement, crosses out moon and writes in Mars, and yeah, then it goes back crosses out forth. Mars. Yeah, it goes back but and forth. Another member of that, um, of the Payne Commission, was Gerard O'Neill. Um, and now you have private, uh, who had this... Uh, very, these very, very grand ideas about the large-scale industrialization of space. And now you see those um, being openly um, followed and uh, championed by, someone, by, by the world's richest man. Do you think that that's actually the way that, that space is going to go, that it's going to become more a matter of private enterprise, less a matter of government-led initiatives? Yeah, the, the triad that's spoken uh, a lot about in U.S. space policy circles nowadays is that the future of space is that it will be more um, congested, contested, and commercial. Uh, and I, you know, I mean, there's plenty of evidence. Those are certainly the, the trend lines. You know, what, what the end states become, you know, there's still a lot of room for guessing and speculation. Um, and yes, Bezos, well, both Bezos and Musk have enunciated big, grand sort of infrastructure plans. What they're still laboring rather mightily to get done is just frequent, I'll make a distinction in a moment, frequent access owned and operated by commercial outfits from the surface of the earth to about the 200-mile point. That's a critical first step to any larger-scale industrialization, but that's, you know, that's a very meager first step, um, and it's not yet massive heavy lift. Um, and the distinction I would make is that uh, Musk in particular is getting up the curve to where he's making it frequent. It's never mm -hmm. routine. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just went off, I think, the day before yesterday to test uh, a new bit of their next rocket, I think it's the SN1 or something. Simple pressure test of this larger fuel tank for the next big thing. And, you know, it blew itself up on the test stand. So you know, it only takes one minor bit of something slightly wrong in one mm -hmm. weld, and you've got a blown-up, crumpled tank instead of a pressure-tested tank. Um, Boeing is trying to get their commercial crew vehicle moving along. They did a big abort test. They're using Apollo-style tractor rockets to pull the crew capsule away uh, if something's going wrong with the stack. And they took just a capsule and the abort engines six, eight months ago to do a first test, and of course that blew up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is all about bombs, mm -hmm. that you've, you've got to get really good at this so that the bomb behaves like a rocket instead of behaving like a bomb. Right. Would the Cathy Sullivan who launched the space, who, launched, who was on the Space Telescope launch 30 years ago, would you be depressed by the current state of space exploration? Uh, no, a bit, a bit concerned. Right. Um, I'd like to be sure you know, NASA's budget right now consumes something on the order of five-tenths or six-tenths of a penny out of each uh, budget expend, each dollar expended in the U.S. federal budget. Um, I do get kind of concerned and annoyed when it seems presumed that, you know, a half of a penny is the actual right total amount. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to add this bit in, we have to drop and stop something else. Um, you know, we all right now are living with scientific results come out of about a decade and a half of pretty robust investment in how to look back at the Earth from space and make measurements that really help us understand water resources, uh, weather systems, hurricanes, you know, on and on and on. Uh, if you look in the pipeline of things coming down the road from NASA or, for that matter, most of the other spacefaring countries, you don't see a continuation of those 
eyes in the sky at that scale. Um, this is not a planet that you measure once and all you need to do afterwards is data mine and you've got all the answers. It's, it's far too dynamic for that. So are we really going to walk away from keeping the pulse of the planet and providing that sort of information to life on Earth? Uh, right now it sort of looks like we are because we're locked into a half a penny is clearly the right amount. I'd, if you'd put me in charge for a while, I'd round it up to a whole whopping penny. <laughs> oh. Now, you said you didn't want to talk about politics. There you go. That's um, not politics. That, that's math. That's just math. <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, ask, ask some, some, some questions from the audience. I'm going to want, um, I'll take one from each side first. You, sir, at the back, and then you, sir, back there, and then I will come forward a bit. Hi, Kathy. He's the referee. Don't blame it on me. Okay. As, a, as, a, as an experienced, as a real experienced astronaut, which um, sci-fi space film do you find the most humorous? Okay. Uh, Next, no, we'll, we'll take oh, two at a time. Oh, got it. Did you say most humorous? It's most funny. Okay. All right. um, and that's presumably intentionally or unintentionally. Oh, <laughs> and there's a, uh, there was a question oh. over here. Yeah. Um, a little bit long. A little bit longer. So um, I was speaking with a friend of yours last night, by the way, who sends his earthly love um, story. Oh, yes. Good. <laughs> That's just an aside. My question is, um, I've also spoken to people like James Rinaldi and Tom Soderstrom, who were the CTO, CIO out of uh, Jet, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They were very, very um, articulate about how NASA have this kind of gold-plated quality control where, you know, everything goes through, you know, three times the kind of quality control and last ability and everything else. I'm just interested in your opinion, how you reconcile that with the idea of invention and experimentation where, you know, actually you really did have to go to the hardware store to find a certain part to fix the mirror on the space shuttle. How, how do you reconcile those two things that you're trying to gold plate, but at the same time you're trying to experiment and invent? Okay, let's take that one yeah, first. I, I, I don't see them as irreconcilable. I see them uh, in, in critical applications as different stages along a process. Um, you know, some of the tools, event, some of the tools used on Hubble over time were derivatives of uh, hardware tools. But it was more the case that you said you go buy a little tiny power drill and bring it in and say, I need one that's this size. But you know, when you, it, it, there's gold plating for reliability, and then there are other realities of tailoring something to space. Any power drill you can buy at a hardware store here just flat won't work in space for, among other reasons, all the lubricants in it just vaporize away. So you've got to be more clever than just shooting oil into your power drill. Um, there, the, you know, gold plating has long been about both assuring uh, life and safety and assuring reliability. And I think one of the things NASA gets uh, caught in is a, an extra high standard of never fail, uh, lest you be accused not only of losing a mission, but of wasting taxpayer dollars. Uh, that's a degree of freedom that Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos have that's different. Bezos and Musk can say, uh, I'm risking my capital. And it's definitely true of Bezos. It's a little less true of Elon, who's had about $1.6 <laughs> billion of public money given his way. And also other private and, investors. And other private money. But you, you can take a little more um, leeway to say, I'm prepared to streamline manufacturing methods. I'm prepared to have you know, a one and done check instead of a two and three and four check. Because the government kind of only has a multiple layers of due process way of getting to reliability. In the end, I, I will promise you that neither Bezos nor Musk is really going to be granted a different risk tolerance, either by the people that fly with him or uh, and the liability lawyers or by insurers. And so the they're question... eventually going to have to find 
They may find a leaner way to get to the reliability standard, but they're going to, in the end, be held to that same standard, I would say. And then to you, yeah. um, I, I, I'm not a super good movie buff, so I'm not the best person to ask this question of. I think the funniest overall space movie I ever saw was Space Cowboys, but I think that was deliberately funny, <laughs> not inadvertently funny. Um, I would say the biggest groaner in, in the worst kind of meaning of being a groaning film uh, was gravity. So the, the premise of gravity is uh, a, a clearly semi-competent, breathless astronaut is working on the Hubble. Disaster strikes, bop over to the space station. Disaster strikes there, too, so bop over to the Chinese station. Here's a sentence that is exactly as feasible as that proposition. Uh, my houseboat on the Thames was sinking, so I walked to the moon. <laughs> I'm assuming you haven't seen Ad Astra. Um, next, uh, question <laughs> yeah. back there, that lady there, and then question at the front here. Um, I'm interested to know how the body clock regulates itself when particularly light is a trigger. Okay. Um, when you said contested, congested, commercial, that all summed up to me as competitive. But to achieve what you have to achieve, when you were describing the people behind the scenes, it sounded like collaboration. Uh, and that's also true at an international level when you're working with Russians and Japanese or people you're about to go to war with. Uh, is collaboration a default requirement, or is it something that must be taught or even improved upon? Mm. Body clock. Oh, no. yeah, let me take think your, that one a bit, pick. so I'll go to body clock first. Um, we, in the space shuttle era, we ran missions on basically a stopwatch timer called mission elapse time. Uh, and what your liftoff time would be set by lots of factors related to the payload or what orbit you need to get into. So it might be that you're going to lift off at 4 in the morning, and in which case you know, get up at 1 in the morning, in which case go to bed at some other odd time. Uh, and we did end up using some of the light management therapies uh, in the, the week of quarantine leading up to the flight to be sure everyone's circadian rhythm was really fully shifted onto that pattern. My first one or two flights, it was just sort of, you've all been in grad school, stay up all night, figure it out, you know, be ready to go. But eventually NASA got more regular on that. Um, space Station was so many, it's been up there for you know, 20 years and um, participants from all around the world. So that, that mission now, it, it maintains a mission elapsed timer clock, but the day-to-day -day operations now are on GMT. Uh, but the other factor is um, you're going around the Earth every 90 minutes. So your 24-hour day does not have one sunrise and one set. It has 16 each. Um, cooperation, competition, congestion. Yeah, Collaboration. I, yeah. Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, there are niches and roles and opportunities for all of those, I think. There are... There are natural competitive tensions, even, you know, even within the astronaut corps. There's a kind of an ethos that presumes some competitive ten It presumes that some competitive tension is always the best way to bring the best out of people. Um, it is a way to spur people to higher performance. It's not always the best way, and it's certainly not the only way to uh, get people to higher performance. Um, I think you, you invariably have you're at least competing with performance standards to reach a high level. Uh, and it's rarely the case that any one human being has all the smarts and answers between their own pair of ears. So some degree of collaboration and learning within teams of different size, I think, is imperative. 
there's still a fair degree of cooperation in civil space activities across many countries. Some of the geopolitical tensions block certain of them. Used to be blocked the US and the USSR. That's now a little more cooperative. Now the, the big tension is with China. Uh, but if you go over to the military and the intelligence domain, it's, it's much, more, much more clearly uh, a com competition for superiority, and at least for the ability to take advantage in space um, should a country choose to. So uh, if, if I'm China and I'm wanting to know I can always take advantage of the United States or of the European Union if I wanted to, I want to know that I can dominate their space systems at the time and place of my choosing because they're very dependent. Their countries, their civil society, and their militaries are very dependent on space assets. And I can level my competitive playing field substantially if I can blind them or um, disable some of their space assets. Within the astronaut corps, isn't there, there must be an interesting tension because I imagine that the people who become astronaut trainees are extremely competitive people, or they wouldn't have got that far, but they're training to be in a very collaborative work mode. Yeah, I think the astronaut corps is uniformly people who are you know, driven, goal-oriented, uh, purposeful, um, not sort of sales, marketing kind of people where everything is negotiable, there are clear things, there are standards. Um, but again, it's, you know, it's one thing to be competing partly with yourself to drive mm -hmm. to your best. It's another to be trying hard to be sure I elbow you out of the way or crawl over you. So it's gotta, you've got to find a way that, that you can have that vying for the best and you're not gonna let each other settle for a weak answer. Mm -hmm. So if you're running an experiment that sort of is yours to run but you're about to do something stupid, or you're not thinking something through clearly, we're not gonna sit by and say, well, it's Oliver's turn. You know, someone's gonna step in and say, that's not the best we can do, and, and you know, drive you or spur you to move on and, and come up with a better answer. Another couple of questions. Um, you've been very patient, sir. Um, and then the, no, I'm sorry, the person behind you, man, who's smiling at me and this ingratiatingly. Lady here. Um, sorry? This lady here, and I will get, And I will then come to you two. That will probably, you two will be the last two, I imagine. Assuming that humans return to the moon in the mid-2020s or late-2020s, how many decades are we away from a lunar base being established, and will NASA or private enterprise get there first? Oh, um, oh so what was sorry, the second the, one going to be? Up there, yes. Thank you, and thank you for your uh, captivating talk. Um, I was curious to, to hear what sort of the American space program thinks of the British space program uh, over the last few decades, particularly contributions to earth science. Um, you know, I think in the NASA arena, the main awareness is, is at the ESA level uh, rather than at the national level. And that, of course, has been very substantial cooperation also with UMETSAT for for weather satellites. Um, you, you, the whole set of constellations it takes to make the measurements that ever, anybody needs to do a weather forecast have been divvied up and shared out uh, in a very productive way between Europe and the United States for quite some time. Uh, so that's a very highly trusted and regarded uh, asset. And human space flight, similarly, contributions to the space station, scientific contributions, crew members, you know, very, very capable and respected crew members. Uh, from many countries, Tim Peake most recently and notably from Great Britain. Um, someone I flew with on my third flight and was a long time squash partner was actually 
part British, which way around was it? Uh, British mother, American father, I think, Michael Fole. Um, so yeah, very, very much appreciated cooperation. Uh, and the solar arrays we had on Hubble at the beginning uh, of its lifetime, the first two sets, they were actually built down the road at Bristol by British Aerospace. Do you think zero G, zero G squash would be something of a game? Oh, yes, it would be great. <laughs> um, and the other question was um, NASA or a private moon base? Yeah, um, you know, there, I'm a bit of a cynic about this. Uh, we're going to go, we're going to build large infrastructures at the lunar south poles because there's you know, water ice there and there's helium-3 in you know, measurable, well, notable quantities in the lunar regolith. Um, and, you know, and there's gold in lots more parts of the Earth than we bother mining because it is so finely dispersed. And the infrastructure it would take and the volume you'd have to process to get any meaningful quantity is really daunting and far from economical. And that's with many mineral resources we know here on Earth. So you know, I, I want to see what is, what's the market demand function that's going to make it worth lifting all of the mass that it takes to create an oxygen extraction plant or water extraction plant, a helium-3 extraction plant on the moon. What's the, what's the national purpose, political purpose, or the market purpose that's really going to drive that? Uh, and the only, the only case statements I've seen are, well, if you can make your fuel there, then you can go further with less push and less difficulty. And that's true and fair enough. But you've got to convince me who's going to build the gas station because they really are committed to the purpose of going even further and sustaining some presence much further out. So I think it's, it's, it's a many decades proposition unless something is found that changes the energetics or changes the concentration uh, that, that we think we know of those resources. There, well, are not, there are not large icebergs sitting at the south pole of the moon just waiting to be melted. Um, yes, you, sir? Space junk. Space junk, yeah. lots of it. How much of a problem, or is it a problem? Um, it, so it, we'll, we'll just take the last. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you so much for, for being here today. I am curious, kind of, you've had a really long, successful career after your experience um, with NASA. How have you kind of understood kind of coming back to Earth from such incredible experiences, you know, being in space, and how has that kind of shaped your understanding um, in your own career and kind of the legacy you'd like to leave? Thank you. Um, space junk, um, there, there is a lot of stuff up there. Uh, I think the current number is something like 20,000 objects being tracked by different space radars. That means there are things sort of this big and larger. But there's a whole lot of more comminuted, fine fragment stuff down to probably poppy seed size. If you, got, if you got hit by a poppy seed that was going at orbital velocities, you would feel like you'd have been hit by a, a hard baseball or cricket ball that was thrown at 90 miles an hour. See, I mean, the energy levels are huge. Uh, and at each time bits collide, two big bits collide, they create a cloud of smaller bits. So that is already a problem that uh, people are very worried about. It's beginning to affect satellite design and shielding and protection. And then now you have uh, outfits like Elon Musk's Starlink that I think have already put 120 satellites about this big into orbit and have a license to put 44,000. And they're only one of about five commercial entities that have licenses to put thousands of these guys up. So it's, 
And there are not yet rules of the road and ground rules for how to, this is sort of another version of tragedy of the commons that's looming before us. Uh, it, it could be possible to so foul our own nest that the hazard of launching anything out into orbit for geostationary comms or Earth remote sensing or military purposes would rise you know, dramatically. Uh, so it's lots of worrying about it, some gnashing about it in an international fora, but no clear pathway yet to set rules for, there are rules for national entities, there are not rules for commercial entities. Um, yeah, I, I started as an astronaut when I was 26 and I think sort of dimly knew this is likely not something I do till the very end of my days. Um, and along the way, I realized, don't ask me quite how, um, probably studying other people who had gone before me, um, this is, will undoubtedly be, I will undoubtedly never do anything else in my life that gets as large a headline as the things I've done as an astronaut. Uh, but that is, does not, it is not the only worthwhile and valuable thing to do in life. And the ingredients of succeeding at the challenges I took on as an astronaut are maybe more dramatic or sort of, in a sense, larger scale variants. But you know, people, people on Earth take on very much the same ingredients of challenge every day in life in all sorts of ways and matters and form. And so something that's motivated me since coming back is to sort of disabuse you of the notion that I've done something unlike anything you have ever done. I've done something in a more dramatic setting that got a bigger headline, but you have done things like this. You, you actually have seen some of the same challenges and, and worked through some of the same problems. So there's, there's not that much separation. And if I can maybe shine some of that light on people who are just making their way in the world or working their way through a, a problem and say, this is cut from the same cloth, what I did and what you've done, it is cut from the same cloth of meeting the challenge of the human condition in a human life. And you know, you've got this. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to have to wrap things up now, unfortunately, it being 2 o'clock here and everywhere else in this time zone, at least. Um, uh, if you'd like to know more about the RSA, um, sign up to the website, and they'll tell you lots about the RSA. Go up to the cafe upstairs, and you'll see lots of people that I see every day, and they'll make you a very nice cup of coffee. And if you ask a fellow how to become a fellow, they'll probably be nice to you about that as well. Um, before you go up there, if you want to buy a copy of Handprints on Hubble, then Miraculously, there happen to be some copies right outside the door, um, and I believe that Kathy will be very happy to sign them. Um, but for now, please join me in thanking Kathy for a wonderful hour. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations. <laughs>